last time I introduced a former student from the LSE uh, to give a talk, uh, it was Kemal Dervish, and he had, as a student, occupied the director's office and uh, agitated uh, against the capitalist uh, LSE. Um, Alex, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, was a model student. I've been trying to think of things that he did wrong here, and the only thing I can really think of is that he disregarded his supervisor's advice always to download and copy every single draft that you do, and as with many other research students, um, left his laptop uh, for uh, longer than he should have done on his kitchen table with the back door open while he went in to watch the golf and came back in the, into the kitchen just to, in time to see his laptop disappearing over the back fence um, with a couple of chapters in draft which he hadn't got copies of. <laughs> Apart from that, he was a model student. He taught his supervisor to text for the first time, for which his supervisor was extremely grateful. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm not quite so technophobic as most people my age. Um, and um, within 10 years of finishing his PhD had become, first of all, going back to the Finnish Foreign Service, then to become uh, a member of the European Parliament, and now to become Foreign Minister and President in Office of the OSCE. And if you all here know exactly what the OSCE does, you'll do very well in your exams at the end of the year. Alex Thanks. <laughs> Thank, thank you very much, uh, William. Sort of, am I supposed to stand here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm reminded uh, with your introduction, William, of a story on uh, Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State of the United States. Uh, he went to a seminar and uh, he was introduced in the following manner. Well, Henry Kissinger, he needs no introductions. He came up to the podium and well, perhaps not, but it's very nice to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you very much, William. It's a great pleasure for me to be here today and in your presence and also in the presence of uh, uh, Helen Wallace, because if you get one Wallace, you usually end up with two. Uh, and my academic career on the European side started very much with uh, Helen and then continued uh, with you. And um, as a power couple, it was very nice to get all the comments uh, on the drafts that I did uh, on my PhD here at the LSE. Mind you, uh, <clears throat> my PhD had a really sexy title, as they always do, Flexible Integration and the Amsterdam Treaty, semicolon, <laughs> Negotiating Differentiation in the 1996-97 Intergovernmental Conference. <laughs> I persuaded Palgrave to publish it as a book in 2002, <clears throat> which probably shows you more my power of persuasion than the business sense of Palgrave. I think they're looking to be selling the 22nd copy <laughs> pretty soon. <laughs> but it was a great experience, really, and the New York Times bestseller list is just about to pick it up. So good luck to all of you who are doing a specific uh, thesis. Now, since leaving the LSE, um, I've had a chance to give a lot of talks at high schools and universities and also at the College of Europe in Bruges where I taught for a few years. And I think one of the fun parts of giving a talk is to come up with a sexy title of sorts. And, and I was really struggling with this one. Who says world politics is boring in search of a new world order after Georgia and the financial crisis? Um, I mean, what I wanted to do was to come a little bit outside the box uh, in the sense that when you're the chairman of the OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, I should probably be talking to you about the challenges of the OSCE uh, before the foreign, minister, foreign ministers meeting uh, in Helsinki on the 4th and the 5th of December. However, I'll spare you uh, that excitement. Uh, and, Lee, and perhaps you can drop me an email or something if, if you really get kicks out of it. Uh, we'll do it in, in, in that direction. So instead I've gone for the big thing this time around. And what I'm going to do is I'll start with a little introduction and those of you who know me I'll then give you three points. 
uh, and I'll finish off uh, with uh, a conclusion. And by way of introduction, I wanted to quote uh, Prime Minister Gordon Brown, who was at the Lord Mayor's Banquet. By the way, he started the speech by saying, Lord Banquet, Lord X Banquet, Lord Dead Banquet. It was, it was one of these, you know, 20 titles. Uh, uh, but very nice speech, nevertheless. And he had a wonderful quote in there, which was, Historians will look back and say that this was no ordinary time, but a defining moment, an unprecedented period uh, of global change, a time when one chapter ended, another began for nations, continents, and for the whole world. End of quote. I think that Gordon Brown was spot on. And in many ways, my feeling is that we've had three key dates in the past 20 years which have changed world politics. The first one was the end of the Cold War and the Berlin Wall. The second one was 9-11. And the third one is the period that we've witnessed, I'd say, in the past two to three months. There's, of course, no link between Georgia and the financial crisis. But both of these events, I think, will change world politics in a way which we really don't know yet at this stage. Now, what I'll do is I'll divide my speech or lecture, if you will, into three parts. First of all, I'll give you what I think are the implications of the financial crisis uh, on the world economy and its institutions. Secondly, I'll talk about the implications of the war in Georgia, and I guess that's the political side of things. And then thirdly, I'll step outside the box and try to give you an idea of what global governance should or could look like uh, in the next few years. If you are to take back anything from this talk here today, it is a thesis. And my thesis is that for the past 20 years, many of the global institutions that we've created, the UN, the OSCE, the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, have not been able to respond to the challenges of the post-Cold War. And my fear is that we're not going to be able to respond this time either. So we need to think seriously about what world governance is. For me, I'd love to have a system which is multipolar and which is based on multilateral institutions, not ad hoc intergovernmental structures. So this is the thesis, big changes. Let's see what we get out of it. So given that we are in the London School of Economics, and political science. Let me start with the economy, and once again, with a quote. Uh, the quote goes as follows. The post-war international economic order is gradually disintegrating. The Bretton Woods system of trade liberalization, stable currencies, and expanding global economic interdependence no longer exists. Spreading protectionism, upheavals in monetary and financial markets, and divergent national economic policies have eroded the foundations of the international system. End of quote. Now, when you listen to that quote, it sounds as if it was written in an editorial of the Financial Times this week or perhaps last week, or even The Economist, right? Or perhaps it was something that was put into the final documents of the G20 meeting in Washington just last week. Wrong. It's actually from Robert Gilpin's 1987 classic, uh, The Political Economy of International Relations. What's the point here? Well, the point is that we sometimes think that everything is new. The financial crisis is new. The answer is it's not. There's a certain, I think, sense of deja vu uh, about it. Now, what's so interesting about the financial crisis is that a lot of people are already at this stage pronouncing the death of free markets, pronouncing the death of free trade, pronouncing uh, the death of capitalism. Goodbye capitalism, hello socialism. I fundamentally, fundamentally disagree with this analysis. At the London School of Economics and Political Science, I guess it goes without saying, that in the absence of both a state and a market, there would be no political economy. We have to look at these two things together. They cannot be 
seen separately. Then I also think that there is a false assumption that markets in a system of market economy run rampant. No, they're always regulated, always regulated. Without rules, there are no markets, just chaos uh, and anarchy. So all exchange, in my mind, is based on the principle that the one who creates the value is entitled to a profit, and this principle, I think, can only be enforced by a regulator. I see in the audience, and I won't be looking in that direction right now, some of my friends who are uh, investment bankers <coughs> uh, and um, deal with other dubious affairs. <coughs> so they probably don't like what I'm going to uh, say next. But look, for instance, the internal market of the European Union, right? Not only in investment bankers, but also who deal with private equity, worse, <coughs> uh, venture capitalists. Um, the internal market of the European Union. It's based on four freedoms, right? The free movement of goods, services, people, and money. Does this mean that all of these four things run rampant and can do whatever they want? No. There's a certain set of regulation that controls it. Now, what happened with the financial markets, and I'm, of course, very modest just as a humble political scientist, is to say that there was a certain sector of the economy that wasn't necessarily regulated well enough. And that was the financial sector. And what are we going to see as a consequence? Well, we're probably going to see as a consequence more regulation on it. Does this mean that we should overregulate? No. We have to watch out for protectionism. But I don't think that as a someone who, who, who is looking for a loan or a mortgage, I should have less security in the product that I buy than when I buy a car. So there needs to be a certain protection, I think, of the system. Now, I don't think the problem is financial services as such. I think the real problem is one of governance, and I'll come back to this. With the financial crisis, do I think that we should close up the markets, basically close the shop? No, not at all. What I think we need to do is we need more effective governance, and in order to be effective in a globalized economy, our governance mechanisms need to be global. And I'll get back to this in a second. I think a lot of the instruments that we're trying to do and deal with right now are national, and that's not a good thing. Now, I'm very glad that the European Union took a lead in the financial crisis. Uh, I think President Sarkozy, in a positive, hyperactive way, uh, was able to deal with the financial crisis. But he did get a little bit of a help from a friend, and that was Gordon Brown. As a matter of fact, I find it rather paradoxical that the whole financial crisis started in the United States with the subprime crisis, then to a certain extent after the failure of, or the early failure of the rescue package of Congress, 700 billion, it came back to Europe. And it was Gordon Brown, a non-Euro member, who got Europe back on its track with three proposals. And from then on, I think we're able to calm down the financial markets and find solutions. Of course, we're now way beyond just a financial crisis. Uh, we'll see the ripple effect uh, in the real market. But nevertheless, it was Gordon Brown and the French presidency who kicked it off. Now, countries like Finland and Sweden, sorry, Finland and the UK, uh, have to be very careful uh, when we look at the package that comes out. Why careful? because there is a real danger of rampant protectionism. Our economies are based on free trade and open markets, and anyone who starts threatening that with protectionism, I think, is a danger. Now, I think that there are three reasons why protectionism is not the answer to fin the financial crisis. The first one is that the financial markets are quite specific. I mean, they have been the least regulated market, as I just said. Uh, but in general, I think the world needs more free trade, not less. And we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's the only way forward, I think, in a developing world. The second reason is that there's no way in which we can maintain healthy public finances with a closed financial sector. And I can say this with a little bit of confidence as a Finn, uh, because uh, my good friend, happens to be the finance minister, happens to be our party leader, was just elected as the best 
finance minister in Europe by no less than the Financial Times. So I guess that in Finland we should sort of know what it's all about, or at least my finance minister uh, does. So my argument is that no country can produce enough wealth from a few protected national champions to provide, to provide for its public sector. Thirdly, I think that protectionism would just fly in the face of the rules of the World Trade Organization. And that's probably the organization that I'm most worried about at this stage. We need it. We need a Doha round, and we need it as soon as possible. Uh, very briefly, I guess, as a Finn, you'd want to hear a couple of, you'd expect me to give a couple of experiences of what we went through in the early 1990s. And I'll just share a couple of quick thoughts with you. Uh, the Finnish state was on the verge of collapse. On the 11th hour, we provided a rescue package, which helped us not to have to go into the hands of the IMF. It was painful. It was difficult. But at the same time, we pushed it through. And it's kind of nice to see that the European solution is very similar to the one that we did uh, in Finland in the early 1990s. And I guess one could say that if the European Union or the e Europe had 100 banks, I think if those banks were to start to fall, banks number 98, 99, and 100 would probably finish. That's how well the system, I think, reacted uh, to uh, the, the whole thing. I also think that no economy is an, Iceland, uh, an, an island. And we have... <laughs> that was one of the worst ones that I did. And I really didn't mean it like that. This is what worries me. Oh. Okay, I'm back. Uh, I think the euro protected us very well. And I'd hate to think where we were without the euro. I think we could have been another, I'll say, it, Iceland. Uh, I think that the euro has also protected a lot of the other currencies, and uh, it has provided us with a certain stability. And I do think that none of us are an island, uh, not even the UK. Uh, so all in all, it was a bitter pill for us to swallow. So what's the sum up that I want to do on the economic part? Well, I think the moral of the story is, is quite simple. No economy is an island, not even the UK. And I think that it's the primary duty of a lot of political leaders to do everything in their power to provide an enabling environment for consumers and private enterprise. It's up to us as politicians to prevent an economic and financial meltdown. And I think we can only do it by acting together. So that's point number one on the economy. Point number two, then, I guess as a political scientist, I know that it's not only about the economy. Uh, and I'll deal with a couple of the issues dealing with, with uh, the political aspects of the current uh, crisis. I think that the whole distinction between uh, economy and politics is kind of arbitrary. I mean, the financial crisis is not a crisis of economics. It's also a crisis uh, of politics. And the problem I think that we have is that we haven't found institutions who could have responded to this crisis. I mean, look at the likes of the UN, the OSCE, the WTO, the IMF, and the World Bank. None of them have been really able to, I think, readjust to the post-Cold War era. The UN has not been able to refresh, if you will, or change uh, its Security Council. I mean, with all due respect, why is the UN Security Council composed of five nation states, China, Russia, the US, the UK, and France? I mean, I can kind of understand it in 1945, but we live in the year 2008. Should they be permanent members, or should we have a different system? I don't think that the UN was able to act properly in Kosovo. They did not succeed in Georgia, nor did they succeed in Darfur. I think the UN Security Council has been a bit of a lame duck and a disappointment, because its main task, really, is to try to preserve peace and deal with crisis. And I think, in many ways, it has unfortunately failed. 
The organization that I'm chairing currently, the OSCE, I think you can make a similar criticism. We weren't able to deal with the frozen conflicts of Abkhazia, Southern Ossetia, Transnistria, or Nagorno-Karabakh. We haven't been, we've been too slow. The WTO hasn't been able to push through the Doha round, the IMF and the World Bank weren't able to prevent the financial crisis. Now, am I trying to say here that let's abolish all those, those organizations? No. I'm simply saying, of course, that if they didn't exist, we'd have to reinvent them. But what I'm saying is that I think these organizations need a revamp. They need to be reworked and renewed. I think there are two organizations, and here's where I get, I guess, a little bit provocative, that have succeeded in change. And those two organizations are NATO and the EU. NATO has been able to enlarge, gone up to 26. The EU has been able to enlarge and taken abroad the euro after the Cold War. Yeah, these two organizations get a lot of criticism, but they've been able to reform. And on top of that, I don't hesitate to say that they are the only two institutions that I know of that are composed of democracies. So what's my sum up on the political side? I think that multilateral cooperation in general transcends the current financial crisis. And I think we need to have a broader look at things. Climate change, the food crisis, weapons of mass destruction, terrorism, infectious diseases, poverty. We can't deal with these in just one institution, but we have to deal with them somehow globally. And this brings me to my third and final uh, theme today, uh, which is global governance. And I, I think that the question that we have here today for all students of international relations is quite simple. Should we replace the current world order and the current international institutions? If so, what should we do about it? I'll try to give a humble, modest uh, first stab. The way in which I see the world has developed in the past 60 years is that after the World War II, we had a bipolar world with two superpowers in the Soviet Union and uh, the United States. After the Cold War, we had a unipolar world, which has been and probably still is to a certain extent led by one undisputed superpower, the United States. What we're beginning to see, I would argue, is the emergence of a multipolar world. In other words, what Farid Zakaria, the editor of Newsweek, in one of his books uh, called uh, The Post-American World, would call the emergence or the rise of the others. And I think this is very much the Obama thinking as well. In the world of the new American administration, we'll probably see a focus not so much on Europe only, or on Russia, but also on India, on Brazil, on China, and probably many countries on the African continent. So we're starting to see, I think, the emergence of a multipolar world. Now, the interesting thing is that at the same time, we're starting to see a debate about new international institutions. Right, we've all heard of Medvedev's plan on a new European security structure. We've heard of Sarkozy's plan to organize a pan-European OSCE summit next year. Or we've heard of some people from the neocon side talking about a concert of democracies, if you will. Now, I'm open to this debate. I don't have a problem. But at the same time, I'm a bit of a fundamentalist when it comes to sticking to two basic principles. One is the UN Charter for 45, and the other one is the Helsinki Accord from 1975. I think the basic, basic notions of international relations have been defined in that, and I do not want to give in on those in any which way. Now, I know that some of you are thinking that, well, isn't the UN already there? Yeah, of course it is, but it really, really needs reform, and it needs serious reform. Now, I think it's failed on two accounts or its weaknesses are two. The first is that its potential to succeed in this core task of peace and security have not been fully realized. That's number one. 
and that's to put it mildly. And secondly, the UN simply does not possess the horizontal powers and, uh, and institutions that we need today. It, it doesn't deal enough with the economy. It doesn't deal strongly enough, I think, with poverty. And in that sense, they have failed. Do we have an alternative to the UN? No, nope. I don't think we do. Now, one of the worrying aspects, uh, I think, is this sort of G thinking, G8 and G20. I'll be very frank with you. I really don't like either of these organizations. And it's not only because Finland is not in <laughs> the, G the G8 or the G20, albeit in terms of real economic power, there could be a claim. Uh, but <coughs> alas, not there yet. But I mean, how can you have a G8 when you don't have China, India, the whole of Africa, and anyone from Latin America? Well, how about G20? Is it any better? Well, it's as only as good as its members collectively. Give me one example of a decision that G, the G8 has taken which has been implemented. One. The there Plaza, ain't. The Plaza Accord. The Plaza Accord? What was that? <laughs> of I 1980, a concerted division, but that's a very long time ago. It doesn't have any institutions, it doesn't have a legal base, it's got no way of implementing its decisions. The G thinking to me is 19th century thinking. A concert of great powers coming together. Let's rule the world. And I personally think that's way, way out of its time. Bretton Woods renewed, would that be a solution? I don't think so. They wouldn't be able to give any solutions on climate change or world trade, poverty and insecurity. Now I think the financial crisis, and I'll start wrapping up with this. I think the financial crisis was a wake-up call to many of us. But my fear is that what we're doing now is trying, trying to solve global problems through national instruments. The problem is a financial one. It, it pertains to all of us. Climate change, it's a global problem. Poverty is a global problem. What are the solutions that we're seeking? They are the G solutions, going back to nation-state thinking. And I think that's simply the wrong way of approaching. So this whole sort of Westphalia mode of the nation-state, I think, needs to be broken, because that only leads to ad hoc intergovernmentalism. What do I propose? Well, I'll throw out an idea. How about if we change the United Nations to the United Continents, UC. If we can't get that right away, why don't we have a UN Security Council which is based on continents, not on nation states? Perhaps we'll get better solutions through that. I don't know. But I do think that the nature of world governance is indivisible. And I think that all the challenges that we have are in one way interlinked. Financial troubles, climate change, food shortages, they can easily turn into security threats if they go unchecked. So what we need are reforms which are broad enough to address economic, political and governance issues. And now I'll come to my conclusion, albeit modest, but given that I'm the LSE I'm going to have to do it. Before coming here, uh, I went back and <laughs> looked at my PhD. Not a good idea. Fortunately, I didn't get far, but I did look <laughs> at the beginning and the preface of it. And I started with a quote from E.H. Carr, which read as follows. I quote, political science must be based on a recognition of the interdependence of theory and practice, which can be attained only through a combination of utopia and reality. A concrete expression of the antithesis of theory and practice in politics is the opposition between the intellectual and the bureaucrat. The former trained to think mainly on a priori lines, the latter empirically." End of quote. Now, I've always believed that international relations, perhaps more than most subfields of political science, benefits from a symbiosis between 
theory and practice. It's always nice to get out of the academic bubble into the bureaucratic world, but it feels fantastic to come back and try to think more broadly outside the box and the daily processes. I think that people like David Mitrani, uh, Karl Deutsch, or Jean Monnet, they were both, in Carr's terms, intellectuals and bureaucrats. And intellectuals because they tried to describe and explain what was going on in world politics. And bureaucrats, because their input inevitably shaped the development of the international organizations in the post-war era. So what am I trying to say? Well, I think that time is ripe now to have a fresh look at all the organizations we've established for managing different aspects of the world order. I don't think we can just continue to redefine the rules of the game every time a new crisis erupts. So the summits of financial governance are hopefully the start of a new recognition of interdependence. It should be turned into global norms and institutions before it's too late. I think that a crisis that we're facing right now is a terrible thing to waste. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alex, and that gives us 25 minutes for questions. So what I'm going to do is take questions in groups of three or four and then allow Alex to respond. And just to allow you all time to think, I'll, I'll ask the first question and make the first comment. I wish I had a copy of Struben Peterson with me to be able to challenge from its text some of the optimistic things that Alex has just said uh, about the European Union. It does seem to me, Alex, that the, the, the problem getting from where we are to global governance is that we can't get rid of the Westphalian system. We now have 194 member states of the United Nations, 27 shortly to go up further of the European Union, um, large and small, some extremely small, Malta, Cyprus, Luxembourg, Iceland perhaps about to apply. But Finland is big in this. Finland is big in this respect, but I, I can recall once suggesting at a meeting in Helsinki that Finland should lead the way uh, away from insistence on each small state having all the trappings of, of participation by recognizing that you couldn't all keep your own national commissioner. And as I recovered from the very sharp attacks I got from absolutely everyone there, I recognized that uh, there are some tensions here. Um, and uh, if the Finnish foreign minister is going to say we have to move away from the Westphalian model, uh, that stubs its toe up against the problem that political accountability is still within the national uh, arena. And to say, well, we're prepared to recognize um, either that, that we will be a small player in a larger entity, um, that, that doesn't win you at the next election. And the G20, G8 thing is that the big boys prefer to get together without all the small states insisting on their rights. Listening to Mr. Juncker um, at finance ministers' meetings is a pleasure which Gordon Brown has sometimes felt can be uh, excessive. So <laughs> you take my point on the, the tensions between the big states getting together or the small states being there, but knowing that they have to play their role very gently. I just want you to, yeah. to reflect on how we handle that, and I'll ask two other people to add some, some questions. Who else would like to come in? Yes. Do say who you are and what course you're studying. OK, carry on. Uh, my name's Jonathan. Hi. Um, I'd just like to explore your idea of maybe a, um, not a United Nations, but a United Continent, or a um, UN Security Council based upon continents. And I wondered how you think that would work when many nation states within these continents can't agree on policy amongst themselves, such as in the African Union, or the EU, or the Organization of Latin American States, and how you think a continent-based system could work without this um, without um, conclusions being able to be formed within the continents themselves. Yeah. The question here. Other questions at the moment? Two. Okay. 
to relatively uh, development management program. One question I have is uh, you have been very much critical of the United Nations for the valid reasons, but when we look at the OSCE and its role in the resolution of the frozen conflicts, such as Karabakh and Ossetia and others, it largely failed as well. How do you see the resolution of these conflicts in terms of your perception of some model of the, uh, where the international organizations are, are, more, are mostly uh, influential in terms of uh, giving the resolution to the conflicts? Thanks. I, let's stop that. Let's yeah, that. sure. I'll give uh, three short answers. I, I think the two first questions were quite linked. In other words, how do you accommodate small and big states within a particular system? Well, that's my basic argument, that I think it's quite a lot easier to do it inside the framework of a continent. To take the European Union as an example, there's a certain balance between big and small. And then, of course, you have the eternal power struggle. How much power should the big have versus the small. The small always, I admit, punch above their weight. If you take it in terms of population, they are better represented than the big ones. If you take it in terms of economic size, they are better represented uh, than the big ones. But usually, the consensus is such that you come out with a decision. And I think it's easier to decide on the number of commissioners inside a European Union than it would be to do it in a bigger context, such as the UN. I do think that we still are based on the Westphalian notion of the nation state, but I think it is not necessarily uh, part of the solution. It's part of the problem, because we live in a world where the economy is global. It, it really hasn't, it doesn't have many limits, at least. So if we have a global economy, why can't we have a global governance system as well? That's my thinking uh, on question number one. Now, question number two then, on the UN and the, the United Continents, if you will, if they can't agree among themselves. Uh, I'm an eternal optimist, as you will have probably uh, guessed from a couple of the words that I uttered up there from the podium. Uh, my argument is, you know, that <clears throat> uh, it's easier to agree among ourselves in a smaller group. And I'll give you one example. That's European trade policy. Now, we are the biggest trading bloc in the world, right? 30% of the world economy is based on the EU 27. When we go to the WTO and negotiate with a mandate from all of the member states, a commissioner doing it for us, we have agreed on a common position. Has it always been easy? Well, how easy do you think it is to accommodate between a British position on free trade versus a French one uh, on protections? It's not easy, but we do it. And that's my, my argument is that foreign policy will follow suit. Yeah, Weber would say that, well, it's so close to the basic function of the nation state that it's never going to happen. But even countries such as the UK realize that they're not the superpower anymore. And when you realize that, you think, you look at for friends. Who are the friends? Well, they are the Europeans, and that's why you start using it. Is this utopia? Yeah, to a certain extent it is. But I do think that it needs to be done. Then uh, there was a question on the, o on the OSCE. Actually, I, I did criticize it as well. Uh, and and I, I can do that as, as, as a chair. Um, I used to think, you know, when I, when I took over this post about seven months ago, that the OSCE, that's you know, a bit of an organization that we really don't need anymore. But then I've had a chance to work with it a lot. And then, of course, some of you might know that the OSCE, and I guess myself personally was quite involved uh, in the Georgian war uh, and in brokering a ceasefire together with the European Union and Bernard uh, Kushner. And at that stage I realized that this organization had much more of an echo the further east uh, you went. To simplify things, the UN with 194 is global, the EU with 27 is regional, the OSCE with 56 is the only organization that brings on a little bit more of a regional basis, the Americans, the Canadians, the Russians, and the Europeans and Central Asians together. What should it do? It should focus on three areas, the Western Balkans, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. Has it failed in the Caucasus? It's tried its best, and one could say that on Abhasia it should have done better, equally on Southern Ossetia, but I think that on Nagorno-Karabakh, 
we are about to find a solution. I think and I hope. I also hope that on Transnistria we'll find a solution at the end of the day. But one thing is for sure that I do think that this organization as well uh, needs some restructuring. Thanks. And you all can identify Transnistria exactly on the map, I'm sure. Uh, you should have asked me that question <laughs> seven months ago. <laughs> yes, the, the young woman there. Thank you. I'm a researcher under Hansard Society program here at LSE and recent graduate from Essex University, and I'm from Georgia. Um, I have a question, actually. Today, um, I had a chance to listen to the uh, House of Lords EU committee, which actually was on the follow-up inquiry um, on European Union and Russian relationships. And um, I had some, um, I had the impression from your presentation that some of the key elements you identified are the same, which actually are uh, some of the issues discussed or common for EU and Russia. Uh, to, to follow up and discuss and have actually um, further relationships on. Whereas we, we remember very well some recent statements and positions of the EU and strong position actually to stop or to hold the, the relationships and some other activities uh, with Russia. So I, I, I'm just wondering um, where, might be the, where might be the place for the interests of Georgia in terms of EU-Russia relationships and further uh, dependence on electricity and gas. It's very, kind of very. Um, okay, yeah. yeah. So, there's someone directly behind you, and then we'll take a question up there. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, you, you, from your talk, it appears you are, uh, you have the bias towards global citizenry, uh, global citizenry, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, but I have uh, a question. Uh, who, according to you, should define the international agenda? Is it the UN? Is it the nation state? Or is it what, like, for example, the OSCE? That is a wider grouping, rather than just a mere uh, regional grouping. And the other thing is, why do we still have this Westphalian notion being corrupted to allow for recognition and dealing with governments that are uh, illegitimate. For example, I know because of this Westphalian notion that your government recognizes Robert Mugabe. I come from Kenya no, and sorry, that my government recognizes, recognizes the government of Robert Mugabe and he deals with it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is a, there's probably an ambassador of Finland in, in Harare. I come from Kenya and I know uh, an election was held there and it was stolen and the government there was recognized as well. The same as Myanmar and other countries. Why do you deal with illegitimate regimes in the name of Westphalia? Thank you. Yeah. Question of that. Thank you. Uh, do you think NATO should continue to expand its eastern boundary towards uh, Russia's neighboring countries? And what is your opinion about the role of American alliance in this new era? Maintaining security. I, I dare possibly even add to that. Do you think NATO should expand further northeast? <laughs> Thanks for putting me on the spot, William. <laughs> God. All of my civil servants are feeling very uncomfortable right now. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll try to tackle the, the three questions uh, apart, all of them uh, extremely good. The first one was on EU Russia relations and, and the link perhaps to Georgia on that. First observation. I think the relations between the EU and Russia cooled off quite substantially during the war uh, in Georgia. But then when the financial crisis hit in, you suddenly saw a warming of the relations one again, once again. And we're getting towards a fairly normal track. Three interesting events within the span of four weeks now. The first one was the partnership and cooperation agreement between the EU and Russia, the negotiations of which continued. And I think that's important because the more European you can make Russia, the better off all of us are. And by that I mean Russia as well. Uh, second interesting meeting, the second and the third uh, of uh, December, NATO foreign ministers and the discussion on whether the Ukraine or Georgia will be given uh, a so-called map or a path towards 
membership. And then the third one, uh, this is a bit of a product placement, the OSCE foreign ministers meeting in Helsinki, which will try to pick up the pieces from uh, the NATO uh, meeting. Um, I mean, of course, the war in Georgia will play a part in this whole package. But let me make one thing clear, and that is that I think there's a certain misconception about the level of interdependence between Russia uh, and the European Union. And I think, uh, for instance, you look at, I think that the relationship is a bit asymmetrical because the European Union is 15 times richer than Russia, 15 times. The European Union has three times as many people, inhabitants, as Russia. And the European Union spends seven times more uh, on defense than Russia. The notion of energy dependency is always looming there, but I'd recommend for everyone to read uh, the European Council for Foreign Relations' latest report on gas dependency, which clearly tells us that out of the total energy consumption of Europe, 6.5% is of Russian gas, 6.5. Out of the total energy consumption in Europe, less than 20% comes from Russia, oil, gas, and the rest of it. But 75% of the Russian energy market is in Europe. So again, you can pose the question, who is more dependent on whom? Uh, but of course, the game that's being played is that there is a strong energy dependency. And certainly, if you look at countries such as Hungary, 60% of all of their energy is gas, and more specifically, Russian gas. So, so you have a certain dependency level there. But we have to be very careful. Again, I'll repeat. The Russian economy is 2.5 of the world economy. The EU economy is 31%. Uh, so we have to be careful. But my argument is let's keep Russia on board. Then there was a question of the global citizen and who kind of defines the global agenda. And I, I think that's a very good and fundamental question which I should have posed a bit more straightforward uh, in uh, the speech. This brings me back to the point of this whole discussion of a Medvedev new European security system and the rest of it. I think whatever we do, let's stick to two fundamental documents, one of which came from 1945, the UN, and the other one, 1975, the Helsinki Accords. There we get the human rights, fundamental rights, territorial integrity, non-use of force uh, in conflicts, um, uh, you know, pulling down arms, etc. I, I think that's where it all starts. To me, these are universal values in international relations that we should stick to. So is it these organizations versus a nation state, say Russia, China, the US? My argument is I'd prefer the UN and the OSCE to do it. On Zimbabwe, uh, uh, I don't know if we have an embassy in Zimbabwe. I don't think we do, no, and my civil servants are also shaking their heads. We do have 97 representations around the world, but Harara did not ring a bell. In any case, the EU has actually been very tough on Zimbabwe. And the word recognition is not one that we use, but the word sanction. In other words, until there is a deal uh, between the opposition and the Mugabe regime, sanctions will prevail. And I think at the end of the day, we'll probably, uh, I think, win uh, on that one. So there is no recognition. But your basic question is a very valid one, because I mean, do you want to deal with what you would call not necessarily rogue states, but states who don't believe in democracy, human rights, fundamental rights, what do you do? I think engagement is usually better than sanctions, but in some cases you have to stick to the sanctions. Then the final question came about NATO expansion, uh, either uh, to the east or to the northeast. Uh, on the eastern side, of course, as a non-NATO member, it's very difficult for me to take a, a clear stand. But I do believe that NATO membership to the Baltic states has been very good in terms of stabilizing uh, the region. I also think that NATO expansion to Poland, to the Czech Republic, to Slovakia, to Hungary was a good move. They became a broader, they, they came to the broader picture of the security umbrella in Europe. Now to the northeastern part, and here is where I keep my foreign minister's hat uh, tightly on uh, because a foreign minister of Finland does not have any personal views our government program is very clear, uh, and that is that we have an option to join uh, NATO. 
which means that we have not closed the door, but I do not think that we will open that door uh, during uh, the next two and a half years uh, during uh, this government. Uh, at the same time, we have very close cooperation with NATO, for instance, K4 in Kosovo, 450 troops out of 16,000. We're also present in Afghanistan, so we don't have an attitude problem with NATO. We just don't have an appetite for membership at this particular stage. Thank well, you. not all of us do, anyway. <laughs> Thank you. That gives us room for just one more round of questions. We've got lots of people up above. Um, let me take uh, the, the one on the, the, on, on the absolute left there, yes. No, on my left, your right, fine. Thank you. Uh, a question again about uh, about Georgia. Um, the the uh, expiration of the uh, OSCE's mandates coming up soon, and, and what, uh, what what's likely to happen there. Just in terms of um, theory and practice, you know, there there were a number of different OSCE um, representatives in in South Ossetia um, during and uh, and before the conflict. There was lots of discussion of this. Um, an uncirculated um, non-public report but was mentioned on the, the cover of the New York Times and um, nobody seemed to be too sure about who, who actually started it. Um, with all of the, the effort that the OSCE put into that, I mean, shouldn't it have been able to play a, a role in, in um, making more clear what actually, uh, what actually happened there? Um, my second question is, is it possible within, let's say, the next three or four years that there could um, actually be a, uh, a, a unified or, or more unified European uh, energy policy. Right. I'll take a um, question at the back up there, and I think there's a question down here. Yes, I'll take it. Right. Um, you very, um, you mentioned the, the various failings of the United Nations and cited examples in Darfur. I could go further and mention Rwanda and now most recently uh, Congo where the UN just sits by and uh, see huge populations being displaced. Uh, is there any real or um, support, uh, concrete and um, practical move towards uh, support for a regional African force that can actually immediately intervene uh, or some kind of organization uh, that does this, the work that you, as the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, yeah, yeah. is doing in, 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 in Europe and the Baltics. Mm. Yeah. The question there. Two questions, actually, if I may. Um, Quick ones, then. First one, um, on Europe, the European Union, um, how much do you think you would need a stronger European Union or reformed Union to build up these global institutions and reform the EU. Is it necessary or not? And if so, is Lisbon the right step or do you actually need more of this? Secondly, also with regards to your wider ideas about world and UN reform, one thing obviously is ideas and having strong ideas and good arguments. The other one is having the people to do it. And, and where, besides yourself, do you see these people? Um, are these people who have I don't know, maybe a more global background, um, have gone through international or supranational institutions like the European Parliament or others, or where are they coming from? Okay. Can we take one more? I think we probably ought to. Uh, okay. He's prepared to take one more, so let me take the, the, the woman at the, at the right there. He's prepared to take one more. This sounds yeah, like I'm an undergraduate student studying economics at LSE, and my question was yes. that you spoke of Sarkozy, um, who has recently been, it has been suggested that he's been adopting socialist policies, well, at least according to The Economist last week, and you also said we need more governance in um, financial markets. Don't you think that we, um, it'd actually be better to adopt a true, truly um, capitalist approach and leave uh, financial mar markets right now to regulate themselves? <laughs> I'm looking at my venture capitalist friend up there. But <laughs> okay, great. Uh, th thanks for those questions. Um, the first question was on the mandate of uh, the OSCE. Uh, there are two mandates. One is for Abhasia, and that's uh, for the UN. And that was extended to February. And then it's open for grabs. The other one is for Southern Ossetia. 
And there we've had problems, I admit that, because we had eight military observers before and they haven't been able to enter uh, in the post-war war time. Uh, and we'll try to deal with that in Helsinki in two to three weeks and hopefully we'll get a mandate. But what we have ongoing right now are so-called peace talks in Geneva, where you have the UN, the EU, the OSCE, the Americans, the Russians, the Georgians, the Southern Ossetians and the Abhasians. And I hope that the latest we have is actually quite good news. So we'll, we'll see what happens at the end of the year. Then uh, you made reference to uh, you know, who started the war and couldn't be the uh, OSC had done a little bit more. I, I'm aware of the debate, uh, which has withered away now. The reason probably is that I think it's rather a surreal accusation to make. Uh, the OSC has eight, or had eight, unarmed military observers in southern Ossetia. The OSC is not a military alliance which can prevent a war uh, or be engaged in a war uh, through uh, military action. What we did from the beginning was to give warning signs about a potential conflict. And if you look at all the spot reports which are always sent to all 56 members, it is very systematic, including my press statements, the last of which came on the 7th of August, on the day that the war then later on in the evening uh, started, where I said that I expressed serious concern about the escalation of violence. Now, at the end of the day, then we were faced with the situation that, that the war had started, uh, which of course is a failure of the OSCE because we were there to maintain peace. And we had then four objectives. One to broker a ceasefire, two, to get the withdrawal of the troops, three, to get the military monitors in, and then four, to try, try to start the international negotiations. The ceasefire we were able to broker in five days, and I'm very happy with that. Uh, but all in all, I've said, and I think I've probably been the only consistent person in here, from the beginning I almost did the Khrushchev thing and took my shoe off and started to bang the table. As an OSC chair, you cannot point the finger at any one specific member for starting the war or escalating the violence. You have to be as objective uh, and impartial as possible. So what we've done is set up an international inquiry outside the OSC to figure out who started it. But for me, to be quite honest, the war had started, we had to stop it, and the rest is history. Then we'll see, see and figure out who, who did it. Then there, were, uh, there was one question on, on the UN. Uh, Rwanda, Congo, Darfur were mentioned. When are we going to have a regional, perhaps African Union, rapid reaction force? The sooner, the better. I want the African Union to develop into a European Union type of organization. And as a matter of fact, I think I'm going to Addis Abeba in March uh, to discuss a Finnish uh, conflict resolution initiative uh, for the African Union, and we tried to promote that. Uh, and the idea that we would have, instead of 17,000 UN soldiers in Congo, we would you know, replace those one day with Africans, uh, African, an African force, I think that would be fantastic. Uh, it would be a, a good step uh, forward. And in many ways, you know, it's kind of a little bit what happened in the Western Balkans. I mean, we weren't able to take care of our own backyard. NATO had to help out. So we now you know, want to turn it around and, and do it in the same way. Uh, then there was the question from an ex-student, Bruges, uh, on, on uh, EU reform, the Lisbon Treaty, and the EU's foreign policy. Uh, I do think that we need the Lisbon Treaty. And I think we would have done even better uh, had we had a constitutional treaty. I think it's a great step forward that the European Union gets a legal personality, a foreign minister, and a president. I'm waiting for the day this is sort of my federalist tendencies coming out of the closet, if you will. I'm waiting for the day when we'll f have similar excitement in electing the president of <laughs> the European Union as we've seen in the United States. I'm afraid we're going to have to wait for quite a long time for that to happen. But I do think that there were great improvements in the Lisbon Treaty. And, and, and I was in Ireland yesterday, and I'm fairly optimistic that one day uh, we'll get it. Uh, you also asked the question, who will do these utopian reforms, who are sort of global enough? Well, LSE students. <laughs> very simple. <laughs> no, question, no question about it. Uh, then there was a final question about Sarkozy, and uh, I think uh, socialist policies <laughs> was, was referred to. Uh, I mean, any time The Economist calls someone a socialist, then you can kind of think of them as center-right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
And I dare to say that because I was sitting next to John Pete today in the CER event. Um, I mean, you know, there's a different notion. I, I mean, what I was trying to make, and I hope the speech is actually um, can be distributed, or you'll find it on my homepage. I'm, I'm very proud of it because I, I wrote it myself. <laughs> I, I really did. I, my wife was not pleased. I did it last weekend. And, and, and there are sections where, uh, you know, of course, I make my strong free market approach. But my argument is as well that, that you know, there is a misconception, a visual misconception, that capitalism means uh, anarchy and chaos. It doesn't. Capitalism has always been regulated, always been regulated in one way or another, because if you don't have regulation, you can't count the value added, if you will. And, and that's why I think that we shouldn't overreact in, in one way or the other. But I would argue that in the financial markets, and my wife, who is a competition lawyer, disagrees with this, me on this, I, I do think that they were not regulated enough. Uh, and that's why we need some regulation. Uh, now, yes, there might be a slight difference in my view on the services directive and perhaps Sarkozy's view, but I would not call him uh, a socialist, just a French president. <laughs> uh, can, 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 can I finish off, if, if you'd allow me, with, with a little, little anecdote from my, my previous life um, in, in the European Parliament? And uh, in the European Parliament, as many of you know, we have 23 working languages when you speak, every language is interpreted. And then uh, my prime minister, Matti Vanhanen, good friend, uh, Finnish presidency 2006, came to the European Parliament, 784 MEPs astutely listening to his speech. And he was speaking in Finnish. And, uh, and he put the paper aside and started to tell a joke. You know, interpretation and jokes. <coughs> It's an international place, you know what I mean. Doesn't always work. Well, fortunately, I sort of grabbed my headphones and put it on Channel 2, which is English, and uh, it was a very smart interpreter, lady, of course, uh, in the booth, who said that, well, ladies and gentlemen, Prime Minister Van Hanen is currently telling a joke. <laughs> Unfortunately, Unfortunately, I am unable to interpret it for you, but I would really appreciate it if you could all laugh now. <laughs> so languages are not that serious. There are many worse jokes about interpretation, including the splendid one in which an interpreter said, the French president has just made a very rude remark, which I will not interpret. <laughs> Alex, uh, thank you very much indeed. I, I hope uh, all of you studying, particularly European international relations, understand that Finland and Sweden, and to some extent now the Baltic states, play very constructive roles in international cooperation. As someone who's studied European defence policy and its development over the last 10 years. Finland and Sweden, not members of NATO, have played very often much more active and constructive parts in a whole range of activities than a number of, of countries that have signed up to a great deal more formally, but do a great deal less practically. And we've had a good uh, example this evening of the constructive approach which Finns as a whole take to international cooperation. Academics and policymakers, a difficult issue. Um, lots of people at the LSE uh, still go on saying, well, of course, what I really want to do when I leave the LSE is to, is to work at the, the balance between the intellectual and the political world. It's a very difficult balance to strike. Um, good luck in, in maintaining it for the next 30 or 40 years. One final cautionary tale, a number of us, I don't think anyone else here, uh, were at a transatlantic conference in Washington two or three years ago with an academic that you and I have read over the years, Stephen Krasner, who had become head of the policy planning uh, unit in state. And he got more and more irritated with the Europeans asking him questions which quoted 
various things that he had written in international organization on foreign affairs with previous years, to a point where he finally said, you can disregard all of my academic work. Much of it was nonsense. <laughs> Much of your academic work has not been nonsense. Uh, I, I hope you will not get back to your academic work too soon, uh, because we look forward to Finland continuing to play a constructive international role. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.